Amen, and good morning to you. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, invites you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We'll be reading through verses 12 through 16 this morning. Uh, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at FAC. And if we have not had the chance yet to meet, I would encourage you after service to just come up front and uh, say hello. Uh, I would love to, to meet you. Um, FAC, our staff, tries our hardest to connect with as many people as possible. Uh, but with a church of our size, it would be easy for certain people, especially new people, unfamiliar people, to slip through the cracks. And that is certainly not our intention. It is not our hope uh, of, of that for anybody that walks through these doors. And so uh, we want this to be a place that you can call home, uh, and we recognize that relationships are what uh, spurs that on. And so um, do help us out by just saying hello and introduce yourself. I do want to also remind everybody that here at FAC, we do make prayer our first priority. Uh, we take it very seriously. And this past year, we launched a prayer ministry that occurs in the gym uh, and my intention with this prayer ministry is that every Sunday during every service, there are people praying for what's going on here and what's going on for the future of FAC and uh, for you guys as well. And so uh, when we launched this ministry in the fall, it started off strong. Um, but as some things do, as the year has gone by, involvement has seemed to, to wane a, a little bit. And so let me encourage you as a gentle reminder to be praying first of all, off for FAC, uh, to be in prayer for uh, us, but also to participate in that ministry. You know, we would encourage you that if you're only here for one service, consider uh, joining us in the gym for a time of prayer during the service that you don't attend. Uh, in that, I believe that we can be powerful and effective if we call on God and are dependent on Him. We would really encourage you to be a part of that, and this is an excellent way to serve the church. And so with that, let's go to God's Word together in verses 12 through 16, and then I will pray and we'll begin. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize that these words on a page are living. Father, because you, they're your words. They are your words that you have verbally inspired human authors to write, Father. And while those, uh, there are humans that wrote these words, we believe that you authored them, Father by your spirit. We know, Father, that your spirit inspired these words. And so now this morning, we're going to ask, Father, that your spirit illuminates these words, uh, that we would see these not just as words on a page, but words of life, words that come from you, Father, and are, are to be used uh, for teaching and in Christian practice, Father, and these words do have life. And so I ask, Father, that your spirit would illuminate these words, uh, bring them to our minds and translate them for us, Father. Would you, would you show us your heart through these words? And in your holy name I pray, 
Amen. To this point, as we've been traveling through the book of Acts, we have seen a spiritual movement take place. Now, any kind of movement from a physical point of view requires some degree of momentum to keep moving forward. This is a very basic understanding of physics, right? This idea of momentum, and it can come in handy when dealing with real-life circumstances, such as getting your car unstuck from the snow, right? Unfortunately, I have become uh, quite the expert at getting cars unstuck from the snow. Uh, Believe it or not, every winter, we get a handful of cars out here on Zimmerly in front of the church that end up getting stuck in the, in the snowbank right outside the entrance. Uh, if I see them out there, I become aware of them, I'll always go out there and introduce myself and offer any help to them. Uh, but I've often been tempted to ask them if they think it's a coincidence that they've got stuck right outside a church. I don't know. Maybe God is trying to tell them something. I haven't done it yet. I've behaved, but uh, it's a great place to share the gospel because they're not going anywhere. (laughs) From so many occurrences, I've learned the intricate and ancient art of getting cars unstuck from the snow. And what I've learned is that when you're trying to get a car unstuck, uh, you're not going to get very far with pushing with all of your might while the driver floors the acceleration. Instead, a much more effective approach is for the driver to actually pump the acceleration and to push at the same time that the acceleration is pumped. Uh, What this does is creates this rocking motion of the car. And as the car rocks back and forth, it kind of builds up this momentum. And then there's this prime opportunity, this moment where the car is in full rocking motion that the driver can then gun it. And with the aid of the pushing, there's enough momentum to create movement, enough momentum to uh, traction to get out. And our time in Acts, like I said, we've been seeing this movement. It's a movement that originated with Jesus, with his death and with his resurrection. And it begins when he tells the apostles in Acts 1, you guys will be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so this movement is the spread of what we call the gospel. It's the message that Jesus Christ has died for the sins of the world and has conquered death through his resurrection and that anyone who believes and trusts in Jesus has eternal life because their sins are forgiven. The spread of such message is the movement that we've been looking at. And when Jesus commissioned them to be his witnesses, To conduct this movement, he knows that he needs to start at this epicenter, being Jerusalem. But as momentum is gained, the message will then spread outside of Jerusalem into uh, all of Judea and Samaria, which was the surrounding region. And eventually, there would be enough momentum that this movement would travel to the end of the earth. In our first four chapters of Acts, we see this momentum start up. 
You can, it's almost as if the apostles are in that car that's stuck in the snow and they're just rocking back and forth, just waiting for that prime opportunity to gun it, right? And they're producing that rocking back and forth in Jerusalem. And we see this energy building up, right? As people are coming to know Jesus, as the community of believers is unified, as people are seeing many signs and wonders and people are are being healed, the momentum is really building up. And then something happens in chapter five that has the potential to kill all momentum. If you're on the outside looking in to this story, you read at the beginning of chapter five that this movement could die because someone literally just died. Two weeks ago, we took a look at the first 11 verses of chapter 5, and we saw that a husband and a wife, Ananias and Sapphira, were influenced by Satan and lied to the Holy Spirit about their charitable contributions. And in that moment, after being confronted by it and even given a chance to repent, they dropped dead. Now, I don't know what you think, but if we're here collecting offering after the sermon and people start dropping dead, that's not good press. (laughs) You see the response in verse 11, actually. Let me draw your attention to it. What does it say? And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Basically, after this event, the rumor mill fires up. And if I'm in the market uh, getting my daily groceries, someone comes up to me and says, did you hear? Did Did you hear what happened with those Christians? No, tell me about it. Some guy and his wife, they told a little white lie and they dropped dead. Can you believe that? No, I can't believe that. I don't want to mess with those Christians. I don't want anything to do with that. That's, that's some serious stuff right there. They don't mess around. This great fear could be a threat to this Christian community as it has the potential to kill all momentum and the results could be devastating. And perhaps you know what that feels like. What it feels like for the apostles to be working so hard for momentum uh, only for it to be halted by some unfortunate circumstance, right? This reminds me of uh, how I felt, believe it or not, in the 2016 World Series. Bear with me, okay? My Cleveland Indians were trailing the Cubs by three runs late in the game with two outs in the eighth inning, but they ended up coming back miraculously to tie it up. The game went into extra innings, and Cleveland had all the momentum in the world, but right before the beginning of the 10th inning, by some sort of miserable divine intervention, it began to rain. And there was a measly 17-minute rain delay. And 17 minutes was all it took to derail any momentum built up and the Cubs ended up winning the World Series in 10 innings. But I'm not bitter at all. (laughs) 
You try and accomplish something. You strive for that goal. You, you set forth so much energy and effort for that prize. And then momentum just kind of slips from your fingers in a devastating manner. The community of believers in Acts are just cruising. And then all of a sudden there's this public death that is directly related to something that they're doing as a community. And you got to think that this is going to kill the momentum of the movement as great fear sets in. You would think that this would be game over for the apostles and that no one would even want to come near them. But then we read verses 12 through 16, and we actually see quite, the opposite. We read down into verse 14 and come to find that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes. Not only has this movement not stopped, but it actually seems to have gained momentum. The ministry is actually intensified. Think about it like this. To this point, Peter and John earlier would go to the sick. They were the ones that sought out the sick to heal. But now people are bringing their sick relatives and friends on cotton mats in hopes that even just Peter's shadow would fall on them. We get the the, the, the sense that Jesus' power through Peter is working so strongly and miraculously that, that, that through Peter that just his presence seems to be doing the trick. And not only is the message of Jesus uh, impacting more people in number than ever in this passage, but from a geographical standpoint, the, the distance of this message is now growing. Look at verse 16. We see that people are gathering from the towns around Jerusalem. Where this message is being heard is now expanding. Word of mouth is traveling to the Judean countryside. And so let me remind you back in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus tells his followers, you will be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, and then in all of Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Jesus gives us the picture of this colossal event happening in Jerusalem, the event being his death and resurrection. And then he explains that this event will have a ripple effect as the news this event expands outward, outside of Jerusalem, into the surrounding regions, and eventually to the end of the earth. When I was younger, I used to live by a pond, and I would often go down to it, and being the, the punk kid that I was, would try and find the biggest rock that I possibly could, and I would just chuck it into the pond, because I wanted to create this huge splash. But something that I would love to do is as I, as I threw this rock into the pond and I, I saw it crashing into the water, I would love to just sit there and wait and see how far the ripples went out in the pond. And the further out the ripples went, the, the cooler I felt, I guess. I don't know. I, uh, the, the bigger the rock was, the greater the, the splash. 
just like a giant rock, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ created this giant splash, this giant event in Jerusalem. And for the very first time in our time in Acts, in verse 16, we see the ripple out of Jerusalem to the towns that surround Jerusalem. To this point, all of Acts has focused what's happened in Jerusalem, but now we see the message expanding out. And what we're going to find is that there doesn't seem to be anything that anyone can do about it in its expansion. So it seems odd that we see this story of Ananias and Sapphira and read that everyone was filled with great fear. And then immediately, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, talks about this ever-growing body of believers and this ever-expanding reach of the message. It seems as though that this great movement of the Spirit doesn't happen in spite of Ananias and Sapphira's death, but rather it happens because of it. This seems to be a result or an outcome of what happened in verses 1 through 11. No, their sudden demise doesn't kill momentum, but actually increases it. Because God takes holiness and our sin very seriously. If sin has the power to kill, which it does, if sin has the power to separate us from God, which it does, if sin has the power to spiritually destroy, which it does, then we are foolish to believe that our own sin has no effect on ministry. Because our mission here at FAC, this movement is a spiritual movement by nature that we have continued since the time of the apostles. So of course, our sin, which is a spiritual assassin, will be an active agent that deters the effectiveness of ministry. I believe that this is why the Holy Spirit took such drastic measures in his dealing with Ananias and Sapphira. Because as we learned two weeks ago, they were compromised and they were under the influence of the devil himself. What would have happened if God let Satan run rampant through the hearts of men and women and influence them? No. Instead, he immediately judges them in this instance so that the community may be holy and primed for effectiveness in ministry. Scripture tells us that God is holy. R.C. Sproul uh, is a contemporary theologian. He's since gone on to be with the Lord, uh, wrote a book called The Holiness of God. 
And this is what he says. I've got the words up on the screen. This is what he says in regards to this idea of holiness. He says, the one concept, the central idea I kept meeting in scripture was the idea that God is holy. The word was foreign to me. So I made the question a matter of diligent and persistent search. Today I am still absorbed with the question of the holiness of God. I am convinced that it is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with. It is our uh, basic to our whole understanding of God and of Christianity. That word holy simply means to separate. To, to, to set apart, it means that God is just in a league of his own, right? He's perfect. He's righteous. Nothing can even come close to him because he is so set apart from everything else. And we see in this passage in Acts that holiness being on the outside kind of creates this weird relationship with the outside world. Because there's certainly this feeling of fear that we read about. Like I need, to, I need to keep my distance. I should keep my distance. There's this certain level of discomfort that's conjured up. I'm uncomfortable with, with it because I just, I don't quite understand. But then at the same time, there's this draw. There's this attraction, a sense of magnetism to it. There's something about it that I desire, that I want. If I could use another illustration out of the Chronicles of Narnia, we see this concept take place when the Beaver family and the Pevensey children come face to face with Aslan the lion for the very first time. Aslan, once again, is the, uh, the godlike figure, character in the book. And the whole book, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, teases Aslan's arrival until he shows up pretty late in the book. And, and when this happens, C.S. Lewis writes about what's going on in the minds of the children. This is what he says. I've got the words up on the screen. He says, but as for Aslan himself... The beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then, they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembling. And if you keep reading, the children go on to almost comically argue who's going to be the first to approach this great, massive, magnificent lion. Who's going to approach him first? With God, there should be a fear, an uneasiness, because we don't understand his holiness. But at the same time, his holiness is beautiful. And it's what he uses to draw us to himself. 
There's something so scary about it, but it's so mesmerizing. And it's unlike anything the world has ever offered me. And so I'm going to go check it out. And here's the uniqueness of being in Christ. God in Scripture tells us, because I am holy, you should be holy. Be holy because I am holy. Essentially, God is saying, just as I am set apart and different from the world, through Jesus' work, I am going to make you holy. I am going to give you Jesus' holiness, a holiness that you cannot attain apart from him. I'm going to set you apart just like my son Jesus. And if you look like Jesus, you're going to be different from the world in which you live. In this world, we are a muted representation of God's holiness, but he often uses the holiness of the church and the holiness of believers to point back to his perfect holiness with the intent to draw people to him. And so as we walk about our day through the community, as we share the message of Jesus Christ to a non-believing world, let's not be embarrassed of the holiness of God. There's no need to apologize for God's holiness and his standards. There's no need to cheapen the gospel, if you will, because what I have found, when we tell people about Jesus, we are very quick to proclaim him as savior, to tell people that he's savior, but we're very hesitant and hold back the fact that not only is he Savior, but he is also Lord. He's my Lord, and so I submit to him. Billy Graham, who is one of the most prolific evangelists of our time, uh, once attended a conference in Amsterdam specifically for traveling evangelists. And there he stated that when he started preaching about the lordship of Christ, many felt that less people would respond to this appeal to commit their lives to Jesus. But Graham didn't find that to be so. He said, if anything, there was actually an increase in the proportion of people who responded to the invitation. There is no need to lower our standards and to look more like the world in order to attract non-believers. We may not quite understand it, but there is a correlation between our holiness and our effectiveness in ministry, and we see that in the text. In our passage, that's the first ingredient to this specific movement of the Holy Spirit in verses 12 through 16, but there is another ingredient that I want to point out. I want to draw your attention not only to the holiness of the apostles in this community, but also their boldness. Take a look at verses 12 through 13 again. The words are up on the screen. I'll just reread it. It says this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. 
this is kind of an awkward passage because verse 13 is fairly vague and ambiguous. Because who are the ones gathered in Solomon's portico? And what's happening at Solomon's portico where the rest of them were afraid to join them, didn't dare join them? Who are the rest that didn't dare join them? Who didn't join those who were gathered in Solomon's portico? Now, there's much debate on how this is to be interpreted. When I initially read this, uh, my mind would think that the rest is actually referring to outsiders of the community, unbelievers who didn't join them. But there's a couple of issues with that. The first is this, that in the text, the word join, a better word to be used there is actually the word associate. Whoever the rest are, are hesitant to associate with what's happening in Solomon's portico. And so this isn't a matter of of joining the group in belief or not, but rather they just felt uncomfortable being around this public ministry in the temple. The second problem with claiming that the rest are unbelievers who wouldn't join them is the very next verse. Verse 14 that says that more than ever, believers, believers were added to the Lord. So how in the world can the rest be non-believers and then the very next verse is going to contradict it? Clearly, non-believers aren't afraid uh, of, of joining the apostles in Solomon's portico because they're coming in droves and they're accepting Jesus in droves. And so who are the rest? there's a very good possibility that the rest may be believers who are are hesitant to join specifically the apostles in the public ministry that's happening in Solomon's portico, which is in the temple. Daryl Bach, he's a commentator, uh, holds to this view. And in his commentary, he actually offers up how these verses, verses 12 through 13, could read. And I want to put the words up on the screen for you so that you can see it with your own eyes, what Bach is getting at. He has added the words in the brackets to help us understand what the text is referring to. Bach writes that it could be read like this. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, And they, the apostles, were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest of believers dared join them, but the people who would be the believers held them in high esteem. If you're going to interpret it this way, it almost seems to say that there are a group of believers apart from what's happening with the apostles who are basically saying, look, I love what you guys are doing. You guys are just knocking it out of the park. You're doing a fantastic job, and we have a great respect for your ministry. But we're still going to keep our distance. We don't really feel comfortable joining you, participating with you in this public ministry. Now, why on earth would there be believers that are afraid to join the apostles? Because after all, there are signs and wonders occurring. 
there's all of these people being healed, uh, which basically means that the gospel message being preached is being authenticated. That's what the signs and wonders are for, to authenticate the message. There's this great ministry success, yet there are still some holding back. Why? This doesn't come as a surprise when we consider the location of the public ministry. Verse 12 tells us that this ministry was taking place in Solomon's portico. You read that and say, why, that sounds familiar to me. Where have I heard that name before? Where have I heard that talked about? And then you turn back to Acts chapter 3, and you remember You remember how Peter and John healed a lame beggar man at the temple gate. And then they walked into the temple together and a crowd gathered and Peter began to preach the gospel. And then before Peter could even finish his sermon, temple officials came and arrested them for preaching the resurrection in the name of Jesus. And where did all of this happen? Where did the crowd gather again? Where did Peter preach Where were Peter and John arrested? Solomon's portico. In Acts 5, when the apostles are sharing the message of Jesus, they're not only doing this in a public place, which can be intimidating in and of itself, but they're sharing the message of Jesus in the very place that they were arrested and subsequently threatened not to preach the name of Jesus again. It's almost as if the apostles are taunting the temple officials. They're saying, not only are we going to not stop preaching the name of Jesus, but we're going to do it in the very place that you told us not to. So it makes sense that some believers may be too scared to join them because after all, it's one thing to be an object of persecution. And it's one thing to be prepared for persecution, but it's entirely different when you go looking for persecution. Here it seems like the apostles are asking for it now. And how we read this is that this speaks to their boldness in mission. And as I read this, I'm forced to be a little introspective here and ask the question, am I like one of the apostles who are emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach the good news of Jesus even in the face of persecution? Or am I one of the rest of them? Am I one of the rest who plays the role of the fan that's sitting on the sideline? The fan that looks at the players on the field and says, I respect what you're doing. I'm going I'm to cheer you on. I'm going to be your biggest cheerleader. I'm going to be your biggest fan of what you're doing out on the field. I hold you in high esteem, but I'm going to watch from a distance because I'm too scared. There will always be believers that throw a wet blanket on the movement. 
when we would take our students to Chicago for Lead the Cause and train them how to share the gospel with their friends. You'd always get a good chunk of them that were just fired up and ready to go and ready to lead this movement for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. But once we got back and we would settle in and we'd get back in the rhythm and we'd get back in our routine and we'd get back in the busyness and we'd get back to just my life, while there were some students that would still be on board, there would be other students that would say, no, that's, that's fine. What you're doing is great, but I'd rather not participate. And so, let me encourage you to ask the same question this morning. Are you like one of the apostles who are emboldened and empowered to go out and share the gospel of Jesus to your non-believing friends and your non-believing family who will go to hell if they die and do not accept Jesus? Or are you like one of the rest who is very concerned with going, what's going on in my life, with my time, in my schedule? If you are a believer here today, you have been recruited by the Most High God not to be a part of the rest and watch afar, but it, to get in the game and run the play. God is building his church and he's using the holy and the bold ones to do it and then affirming his work through signs and wonders. Church, there are amazing results to be seen should we resolve ourselves to holiness and boldness. Let's pray. And Father, I would ask um, that personally I would not be like one of the rest. Lord, I, I would ask that you would, uh, by the power of your spirit, uh, spark a passion for the lost and a compassion for the lost. Lord, as you, uh, in your parable, seek out the sheep. Father, I, I, I pray that you would use us as a church at FAC to be the hands and the feet uh, of your seeking out the lost. I pray, Father, that our mission and our movement here would be all about glorifying you. And we know that glorifying you means elevating the name of Jesus and telling people what he has done for us. We understand, Father, that through his death and resurrection, we have life. And I pray that we would not fall complacent to that. I lift up our offering to you, Father. Would you bless it? I ask, Father, as we collect it, that it would once again be a way that we glorify you, Lord, and that you would multiply it and that we would use these resources to bring glory to your name. And in your holy name I pray, amen.